Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin and I'm joined by my co-host Sim. On today's show, we welcome a good friend of ours, Rashid Dar. Rashid is a research assistant at a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and then a master's uh, from Columbia University. And he also squeezes in a year for y'all Chicago folks at the Islamic Institution, Daro Qasim. So Rashid, uh, thanks for coming on the Mad Mamluks. How's it going? Good man, alhamdulillah, how are you doing? Alhamdulillah, not too bad. Okay, so, you on, man. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, you're you're actually a kind of a Chicago land, you're out in the East Coast right now, right? I know you did Columbia, but yeah. you're kind of a local for us, Chicago guys, right? Yeah, tell yeah, us a little bit I'm about local-ish. your background. I like to say I'm localish because uh, I grew up in actually in Arlington Heights um, uh, uh, up until the age of six. Uh, I was born near Palatine. Then uh, at the age of six, my mom got into a master's program at a small university in Kenosha, Wisconsin, right across the border. It's the last stop on the metro train if you're going up. Uh, and uh, and so I grew up in Kenosha. Um, uh, and then up into, you know, from the age of six to 18, I grew up there. And then I went to uh, Madison for college, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And, you know, but... I would come to Chicago often. We had some relatives down there, but uh, it was mostly we'd go down to Devon to get halal meat. It was the closest place, and I think it still is the closest place for us to get that stuff. The pressing so, question is, are you a yeah. Green Bay Packer fan or a Chicago Bear fan? Uh, uh, I, I'm not a sadist or a masochist. So I'm a Packers fan. That's, oh, that's my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you lost all of Chicago. Uh, uh, maybe I can get off the podcast now. <laughs> I mean, you're, maybe your Darrell Gossam, like studies <laughs> will endear you to some folks still. Because, <laughs> you know, maybe some guys they don't care about. I feel like a lot yeah. of people, people gave up on the Bears already. But 10, yeah. I don't think he lost a preseason game. Like, Trubisky had a pretty good game. So people are <laughs> like, oh, Super Bowl in two years. <laughs> you know, that's the thing about Bears fans. They like, you know, get super excited, like, oh, just a little bit, like, you know. Yeah, it's all or none. Yeah, yeah. Like, all of a sudden, like, <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's we're, we're in a Super Bowl. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so grow, you grew up in your formative years growing up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Is that kind of, can we assume that's pretty much like, um, you know, corn country, white suburbia, where <laughs> there's no, like, a Muslim, um, there's no Muslim desert, so to speak. Uh, you know, compared to Chicago, um, at least in America, most places are Muslim deserts, I think. But um, with that said, uh, Kenosha definitely uh, it was not exactly Mecca, but there was definitely there was a masjid there. Interestingly enough, uh, um, a good sized community of Albanians settled in Kenosha a long, long time ago. I think in the late seventies, uh, early eighties. Um, and actually our imam, uh, in Kenosha, he, he, you know, he grew up in Albania. He was, uh, in, he was conscripted into the communist army. Uh, before that he, he had gone to Azhar University. Um, uh, he had graduated from there. Uh, I believe he had even studied with Al Albani, which according to his name, you know, is an Albanian as well. Um, uh, he went to Sheikh Al Albani, for those of you who don't know, uh, a muhaddith, a modern muhaddith. Um, and then, uh, he kind of organized, uh, Albanians in Kenosha. Uh, he got them out of the bars and things like that. Um, there was a, uh, if any of you have read about, um, the state of the Muslim community under Soviet rule, um, it was just, it was really, really bad, really, really harsh. Soviets did a whole lot, um, to kind of, um, destroy the edifices of, uh, of, of, of Muslims and their, and their religion. 
uh, anyway, so he kind of cleaned things up. He was just, he's just this is a really cool guy. You told me he would preach Islam secretly um, on his little boat that he was stationed on uh, <laughs> while in the Red Army. Anyway, I grew up in this community, but it was still very ethnically, you could say, based community. So the Khutbas were in Albanian. Um, there were a couple of other like Desi and Arab families when I was growing up, but um, it wasn't until you know several years later where they started doing started doing English khutbas. Uh, my parents are kind of hermits, and you know they we basically I didn't I didn't grow up with Muslim friends. It's a long story short, uh, and and that was interesting. You know I didn't grow up with Muslim friends, but you know I I guess I was a, a good kid, and I, I prayed. I've been praying five times a day since I was like ten years old or whatever. <laughs> Um, and I never really, I guess, um, I mean, I, it was kind of just like who I was, you know, growing up because, um, you know, that's, that's how I was raised. But after nine eleven, you know, you start to think more about like, what is this thing that I actually believe in? And maybe I ought to like read what the Quran is all about. Speaking of nine eleven, is nine yeah. eleven a, uh, like what, how old were you when nine eleven went down? I was in seventh grade, okay. and I mean, it's like super cliche now about like Muslims like making nine eleven their like wake up moment or whatever. But um, for me, I think it was a little bit different um, insofar as that I was engaged in conversation with people online at the time. So I was what eleven years old or so, and I was actually really involved in several message board forums um, for, for stupid things like video games and things like that. And, uh, so you're 11 years old, seventh grade. I'm, I'm just trying to do the so, math here. I was like, you must've been accelerated yeah. or something. Well, I mean, nah, maybe, nah, maybe I nah, forgot, nah. maybe I forget, but you know, <laughs> you, it's funny. You mentioned 9-11 as a turning point yeah. for Muslims, but for me, I was living in Canada at the time. It was like, yeah, this looks pretty bad. And it's going to suck crossing the border, but I, I, I didn't, good. <laughs> I, I didn't really practice as a, I wasn't like super practicing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I like in that sense, I wasn't like, I didn't have this crisis of like oh snaps what do i believe in i was like yeah these guys are kind of crazy but it is what it is you know i think my initial impulse was really like i am a muslim it wasn't really like my whole world is questioned and i'm thinking now that like the prophet you know has, i mean that the prophet was a liar or something like that i, I didn't i didn't jump to those kind of uh, like extreme conclusions um really my initial impulse was one of defense meaning like oh these are a bunch of crazy people that did this I need to kind of set the record straight with all my friends online. And when they came up, when they came to me with, you know, uh, concerns like, you know, I read that your, your Quran says this and says, says that, um, you know, you kind of have to start looking into this stuff because, you know, I wasn't taught uh, about, you know, the quote unquote, so, so-called like problematic verses or controversial issues and these other sorts of things in Sunday school. And, and my parents are, you know, very, I guess you could say they're, they're very, uh, uh de- they're very devoted Muslims, but are they like ulama? No, they're not ulama, right? And so I wasn't learning those sorts of things. Um, and so you kind of had to sit at the feet of Sheikh Google and like figure it out, which is very dangerous, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and I think that's kind of the, the next part of the story is because you start Googling things, looking for answers, you start going to the library, checking out books. And, uh, you kind of, and you just kind of gravitate towards that, which, uh, I think, you know, makes you feel better, uh, that, that, uh, can answer the questions that, uh, people are lobbying at you, um, that make you feel like you belong, uh, in America and that Islam is, um, 
there's there's, there's, there's no tension between uh, Muslims and, and the rest of the society, etc. Uh, I found myself gravitating towards interpretations of Islam as a result of my impulse to defend Islam. I found myself gravitating towards interpretations uh, that were, I guess, say, more liberal in nature, progressive in nature. Even I remember my uh, uh, MySpace profile in, in in high school. We're going way back now, but I remember. Uh, I think I, 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 you know, maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I believe like Irshad and Manji, um, a friend requesting me way back in the day because I would spout like, you know, I'd be like fan, you know. Joining like progressive Muslim groups or this or that, I thought Reza Aslan was just like a genius. Um, today I don't. I think you know. <laughs> well, I won't go there, but I think he's made some statements that call into question um, his uh, his Muslimness and things like that. Why do you think uh, that was? Uh, Why do you huh? think you gravitated towards those kind of people to begin with? Well, I think I think for me it was it was initially it's this idea of defense. It's like oh, these are crazy people that flew these planes into these towers. So people who seem like they might, uh, that, that believe in similarly crazy things. Um, I, you know, I want to disavow that. I don't want to associate myself with those kinds of interpretations. And it's not just about violence, right? I think this idea of like crazy people and crazy things, um, it, it's an insidious notion insofar as what is crazy is going to be, you know, it begs the question of what is normal. Right. And because and you have to, to, in order to find what crazy even is, you have to know what quote unquote normal is. Um, and at the time when I was that young, uh, what was normal and what was, was supposed to be was really defined by my environment and what I was soaking up day in and day out. Um, and that was more or less the norms and conventions and mannerisms of modern Western uh, liberal society, small out liberal society. So uh, that was like the base um, from which I was comp- making my comparison and, and judging doctrines and beliefs and groups and sects. So right? 9-11 became, in essence, a symbol of intolerance for, for you. Like it was a, a way anytime people, they're very adherent to their beliefs, you kind of associated, not maybe not even actively, but even subconsciously, you kind of associated with uh, strict extremist version of Islam. Yeah, I mean, this idea that, you know, I don't know, I can't really point it to one specific instance, but, you know, notions such as, like, literalism is always bad because literalism is, uh, you know, will lead to extremism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, And and I I don't know. I mean, these... I guess I'm trying to think how to phrase this. They're, They're just... I think there are, there are things that we imbibe as part of the civilization and culture that we're a part of that subconsciously inform how we judge phenomena, right? And you have to know what are the first principles from which you are operating. But if you're just like a seventh grade kid in a traumatic event such as 9-11, something that you I – mean, we all remember where we were when, that, when, those, when those planes hit those towers. Um, you, you know, you, unless you've been properly trained and – You've been uh, uh, educated in what your first principles are. Uh, you're going to, I mean, you're, your basis of comparison will be just what seems normal to you. And what seems normal to you will be the environment that you grew up in. I did not grow up in, like I said, 
a, uh, a very, a very like, uh, my city was not teeming with the Muslims, right? right? So inside the house, yeah, definitely. It was like, it was like a little box down inside my house. Um, but outside my house, you know, it was just, uh, it was just mostly white people, uh, that I would go to school with and, and be friends with. Uh, and, and so that, that's, that's who I was around. And so that was my, the, them and their culture that kind of became the basis from which I, uh, made comparisons and, and tried to understand the world through. Um, and, and rather than you could say a sustained study of what it is that my religion is actually teaching and whether I, on my own terms, felt it made sense to me to follow or not. So I, you know, I, I began to gravitate towards, towards authors like the ones I mentioned. Um, and I mean, it was, I, I guess, you know, in college, I, things changed for me insofar as rather than being like the only Muslim in town, I mean, I had my younger brother as well, but I now had like an MSA, I had community and I'm going to get back to this point inshallah, as we continue this conversation. But I basically had suhbah with people, with other fellow Muslims that I didn't have growing up. Um, you know, I made my first real Muslim friends after the age of 18. Um, and, uh, and I know it doesn't always work this way where, you know, Sohba is just uh, some kind of magic bullet. I know, I know, I know Hafab who grew up all around Muslims and when they go to college, the, the last person they want to meet is another Muslim. So I, I don't, I don't mean to do that, but I had the opposite kind of, uh, experience where I grew up with like no Muslims at all whatsoever. I go to college and I'm like, oh my God, there are people who with like, you know, you know, uh, funny sounding names like me and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I should, I should meet them. I should be friends with them. We should talk about the fact that we're both Muslim and we can, we can do things we can do Muslim things together. Right. And so I got really into MSA. I was elected a uh, president by my junior year, also served my senior year as president. Um, and I kind of put my everything into MSA. Um, and, uh, uh, I made a lot of really good friends and I just had a lot of these like late night conversations with people, you know, people who are more knowledgeable than me, people. And I was also blessed to, uh, at the university of Wisconsin at the time, there were, uh, uh, a good amount of Muslim professors and, uh, community members who, um, were educated and could articulate a traditional understanding of the dean uh, to, um, to 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 a to a young uh, college student uh, in the, who's majoring in, in the humanities. I majored in international affairs and uh, Southeast and Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, South Asian and Middle East studies. Right. Yeah. Um, and so having yeah yeah. So I was just like I'm sorry to cut you off, but like your yeah. your experience I think is very similar to my own. I, I just want to kind of like mm-hmm. talk like there's a lot of there's some themes, especially when you're talking about like the kind of folks you were looking at as far as resources early on when you're trying to yeah. grasp your faith. So number one, we, we talked a little bit, and we talked a little bit about this with um, our last pod, recent podcast with Dr. Muhammad Gilan, uh, where he's talking about like you, you, every human being, wherever you are, you are subject to some kind of ideology, whether you know it or not, right? And mm-hmm. I think part of what we're growing up the way we grew up it was that we we grew up with like non-Muslim friends. You're not really thinking about, and you're like everyone's religion, and it's a very pluralistic uh, outlook mm-hmm. on religion, right? It's like yeah, you do that, but you're not thinking about like big picture, like you know, oh, this your my religion is the only path to salvation, etc. And people who think that way, that kind of exclusivity, are just the extremists. That's the kind of you know, narrative, even amongst people who are considered themselves religious, 
you know, they have that. Now, granted, Islam has a lot of nuance and how that's approached. But generally speaking, we all, like Orthodox Muslims, believe that our tradition is that path that will lead one, is the, is the, is the sole path. Um, yeah. It's not factoring in other issues of, like, how the people receive the message, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you mentioned going to the library. So, for me, I'd go to the public library, and th- those were the books that were available. You're not going to find, like, you know, you know, uh, book by Sheikh Hamza Yusuf just sitting in the public library, right? Yeah. You know, it's going to be, uh, you know, Reza Aslan or, you know, the guy I used to always like was, um, and I don't even know if he's problematic, was, is uh, Dr. Jeffrey Lang. You know, he's oh, a yeah, math yeah. professor at the University okay. of Kansas. Okay. We actually invited him to our MSA. He's a really nice, really nice guy. Really nice you know, guy. so for me, that was my guy back mm-hmm. then. But then as you go into college, yeah, and, but for me growing up, I had Muslim friends, but they weren't practicing. And mm. anyone who looked to be practicing for me growing up, I was like, man, this kid's weird. Or I'd make fun of their beard and stuff. I remember going thinking about it now. Like, I have friends today that I remember we were, like, Sunday school classmates, and I'd see them, and they'd have, like, a t-shirt that said Muhammad on it or something. And I'd be like, man, this, mm. what's up with that dude's shirt? What's up with his scraggly blue beard? We were, like, 14, yeah. 15 back then, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so, for me, that was kind of similar in that sense. I, had, I did have Muslim friends, but, um, you know, MSA and the companionship at MSA is really where I think I embraced the dean, so to speak. So, yeah. You, you, yeah. So, you were saying... Uh, so, so, so your MSA president for a couple of years, you established the the Khilafah in Madison. Then what? <laughs> um, yeah, no, so I, had, I, I had good friends and I had good friends in Madison, good sahaba, um, good folks, and uh, I also think that I would say that I guess you could split my time in terms of how I how I approached my faith in college into two phases. I think in the initial phase, it was more of just kind of like getting reeducated, learning learning things from the ground up you know, realizing that, you know, maybe some of the ways that my parents taught me to pronounce things in prayer were actually kind of off and kind of just humbling myself and just like, you know, <laughs> looking up how to do wudu again and these other sorts of things. Or, uh, and that's something that uh, I, I, I got into. I uh, There's also the mode of, you know, having suhaba with people, having conversation, you know, listening to their evidences for certain things. I remember, for example, arguing the issue of, uh, of hijab with um, some of my friends. And I don't want to make this about hijab because I think these conversations get boring after a while. But at the time, I had thought that, you know, hijab is kind of like an unjust imposition. It just can't be far. It's not something uh, that we can really expect. And I, I you know there's so many objections that I'd come to hold about the issue. And I didn't find the evidence compelling and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was through conversations with people who were sincere and nice and, and had patience with me and my ego that uh, I came to, you know, just kind of realize that I was kind of in the wrong. And also just looking inside and realizing that the why I was so obstinate on a certain point was really more emotional than, than, than sitting down and taking a kind of uh, cold, hard look at the evidences, right? And realizing that there could be that something that may make me uncomfortable initially um uh would uh that that shouldn't how i feel about a certain issue shouldn't factor into how i evaluate the evidence right um and i should just evaluate it on its own basis of its strength and, and the claims that it's trying to make for itself uh and you know long story short you know i, I ended up switching my position on that issue and many others like that um and you know you could say my how I approach, I, I basically went from being a liberal to being more of a traditional conservative uh, when it came to how I approach 
approach my Islam. That's, you could say, the first phase in terms of the re-education. Is, it was much more focused on the islah of the mind, right? Uh, the rectification of the mind. Uh, after that, though, you know... So, can, b- before you yeah. go on, can you... We got that question. We get that question from listeners a lot. What yeah. do you mean by liberal or conservative? Because, like, if you ask some ulama, they will say that Islam doesn't have liberal or conservative. These aren't, like, labels that we have within Islam. No, I what does that, that mean to you? So I, I I try not to use terms like liberal or conservative. I even try not to use terms like Islamic um, because, uh, you know, I don't really know what that means. I think people it's a term that people use to justify whatever it is that they're trying to say. You know, so environmentalism is Islamic. You know, this this bicycle is more Islamic than the other bicycle or whatever the case may be. You know, like people are going to uh, – people kind of use that term. There's a lot of politics around that term. Um, so I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, in terms of this, my specific case, um, I guess in, rather than using liberal, I, I could better use it as um, mm, so. The word conservative comes from uh, in English. It comes from the idea of uh, preserving um, or safeguarding over something. In Arabic, when you translate the word conservative, it, it you usually word, use the word muhafid, right? Um, and, uh, liberal comes from the word liberation, right? Um, the idea that you will liberate the mind from all external impositions that are sitting upon it. You will come to look at things in a, in a, in a new way, in a more honest and open way. Um, and it's, it's also, and it's also about liberating the individual, right? From strictures that constrain it. So in a sense, you know, liberalism is, I think, very tied to, um, uh, an exaltation of the individual of the individual's freedom, and so one. So I guess you could say I went from being from kind of seeing uh, the individual's freedom to think and act as it wishes to being less of a concern um, uh, because now I was instead of recognizing the right of God upon me and my individual agency, um, and I was now moving towards a place where um, I was trying to make my individual choices i was trying to make my individuality um in concordance with what i felt god wanted of me through wahi and the religion that he sent down and so that um is how my individuality started changing i went more from from kind of thinking about myself and how i feel all the time and more about allah azawajal and how he feels about these certain things and what and and how did i ascertain that um, I found the best way to ascertain that was to look at the scholarly tradition um, and to recognize the value of accumulated tradition, uh, accretionist tradition, um, where whereby, you know, rather than say, you know what, let me read the Siha Sitta, like all the six books of Hadith, let me memorize the Quran, let me like become a muhadith and a faqih and, and a mujtahid basically um, until I understand this religion totally. Why do not, why not, should I, should, why should I not stand on the shoulders of those who came before me and did the work, um, and studied in a way that I can't even, um, I can't even imagine. I remember, you know, one of the, one things that was, one of the things that was very, um, that, was, that left me with a very, um, changed impression was actually going into the stacks, uh, of, in the library at, at, at the University of Wisconsin Madison, um, and looking at the classical Arabic section where you see all these old books that usually PhDs in Islamic studies look at. 
and you just look at the volumes, right? Just like if you look at like books that like uh, Imam al-Dhahabi wrote, you look at the books that, um, you know, that like uh, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani wrote, you look at books, these books from the past and you think like, I, I, I clearly know nothing about this religion. You know, it was really, that's, that's, I think the initial step is to say that you really don't know all that much. People did quite a lot before you. And you kind of have, if you're even going to be, have any kind of confidence in your, um, conclusions about what's, what this dean says and teaches, you're going to have to take into account the work that was done before you. Um, and because, you know, uh, and that, that only, that made rational sense to me. You know, I, I didn't feel like it was, it was too Herculean of a task to think that I was going to re-derive Islam just so I could understand it and follow it. Um, rather I would, kind of uh, make the process faster by building upon accumulated tradition. I would also make the process faster by uh, accepting, uh, accepting the institution of the Senate and it's not um, uh, the idea that the prophet taught he taught his Sahaba and then he taught and those Sahaba taught the Tabi'in and so on and so forth. And that they kept, there was an authorization that is handed down over time. And, uh, sorry, uh, uh, you know, I, I came to accept that idea, um, as being, uh, a real source of truth. Um, and rather than me looking at a proposition and thinking, uh, yes, this is true in my estimation or no, this is not. Um, I would, I would instead say what I would, I would take before I would, I would definitely like make my own decisions, but they would be tempered by what the tradition is sent down in terms of what has precedence, you know, what, uh, how, how do we understand these things? And if I was going to break from precedent in a certain issue, I was going to really need to have a really good reason for doing so. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, no, I, you, I don't know. I, I think you've sense. outlined this perfectly. Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So basically if I um, were to, you know, kind of rephrase it, you know, it's almost like, so you have two ways to look at the religion, right? You have number, you're, what you would call what you early alluded to as liberal, I would define it as like maybe progressive. Is that okay? I want to be I want to be religious, and I'm gonna take the scripture and I'm gonna try to like think about how I feel, what this means to me, and my personal relationship with God, mm-hmm. um, and completely ignore the fact that I don't know Arabic, I don't have basic fundamental tools to analyze these texts. I don't know yeah. the the context of the Quranic revelation, etc. Um, a lot of times, these people aren't even they. For example, and a lot of times, folks like this don't even accept a hadith, right? Mm-hmm. Not to generalize, but um, that's I, I would say that's very common um, because they're like, oh, that that's just a human narration, and there's human error involved, and they're like, I'll just throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know realizing that, yeah, there is like a tradition here and I have to follow qualified scholarship to understand the religion. And the ironic thing is, is that those pro- the people who are progressives and they come from various fields, enge- like, you know, whatever, There's, they may be engineers or doctors or whatever, they don't approach their other fields the same way. Mm. You know, they're not going to just go, they're not just going to like pop open like a physics, some book and then try to analyze. You're not going to like have a professor who... You know, and I, and I remember someone was telling me that the whole Ijaza system or the Isnad system is essentially a precursor to how, you know, the modern academic system of professed PhDs 
get, getting their doctorates, you know, defending their thesis in front of their advisors and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff in, in, a, in a way. So I don't know how accurate it is. I've heard it. I've, it, it was a nice thing for a Juma Khutbah, whether it's true or not is another story. But yeah, um, you know, if people are interested in this specific topic, I would suggest the book The Rise of Colleges by George Mukdesi, um, which kind of goes into the um, Muslimism and how it gave rise to the modern institution of the university. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of evidence towards that. And, and Mukdesi's book is a fascinating insight into that. Mukdesi, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, was Dr. Jackson's thesis advisor at the University of Pennsylvania. So, you know, it's a very good book. Um, I would, I would, I would check it out. But there's, there's merit to what you're saying. I, I don't, I don't know if I can verify that exact uh, line of information you gave. But yeah, there, there's a, there's, there's a lot of literature on this for sure. Yeah, the, the same thing. Um, but the dude yeah. said something about the tho- a thobe, like the jellabia is similar to like you know how the gowns we have back in like on graduation day, it's similar and whatnot. So anyway, so so moving along. So at this point, you've pretty much embraced traditional. You know, you you go on to Dark Awesome after um, your time at Wisconsin Madison, right? And then, um, and I, I know you ended up at Columbia, but um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. So I, I want to first of all highlight the point that you did have enough awareness to kind of change your viewpoint. I think people do often, but for me, um, I think a lot of people just get set in their ways. It's just easier. Like it would have been so much easier for you just to say progressive and like do whatever you want for the most part and just have this personal well, wishes of God, so, I think. So, so for me, I think uh, it was a good sign when I felt uncomfortable. Uh, you know, like when, when I realized like, hey, like this is different. I'm not accepting it as easily. Maybe that could be I'm, I'm basically fighting this, this initial bias that I have. You know, my, my proclivities are changing. Uh, you know, that, that whole sort of thing. Uh, as I became... Uh, you know, say more traditional, uh, that feeling became less so and less so um, because I was exposing myself more to the tradition and its logic, um, and I was becoming more convinced by it. Um, but in general, I think it's a good thing to, um, in measured and careful doses, to expose yourself to levels of uncomfortableness. Um, and you know, now that I kind of find myself in the traditionalist camp, um, I find myself still reading. Uh, progressive arguments and liberal arguments um, and sometimes they make good points right and I have to be able to um, you know see if I can uh, if, if you know I have to, I think people's relationship will, will continue to evolve I, I pray right now that Allah keeps me in this camp you know until I die um, and you know but Allah is a turner of hearts and you know we, we ask him for uh, his guidance in, in that regard you know we, we can only try um, but Allah will ultimately put us on the on, on the path, and I think that that kind of puts me um, into the next thing that I wanted to say was that as I was changing my mind about various things, I, I kind of felt like my relationship to um, to Islam to Allah the, it was like a very cerebral relationship. I think that's the best word that I can think that I can use to describe it. You know, and I realized that when I when I heard buzz and things like that, people would talk about you know the love that Allah loves you, or He loves His creation, or the Prophet loves His Ummah. These other sorts of things, terms serving to do with love, right? Um, and feeling and emotion. For me, like Islam was almost like something that I, you know, it was something that I like, critically analyzed on like a very um, Akhlani, cerebral sort of level. 
Um, and I didn't, I didn't feel, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't coming into me in that same way. Um, and you know, I, I don't know what, what changed, what clicked. Um, but this idea of like, you know, I guess what occurred to me was that there are, there are things that I loved in life. Like I loved my parents, you know, I loved, I loved certain people, you know, the, the feeling of love was something uh, that, that I knew I wasn't like, a, I didn't have, I wasn't a robot, you know, I, I, I could feel and I had emotions and I, and that, and all that. And I thought to myself that I have these emotions for created objects, which I acknowledge are created, created beings and other, other members of creation. And should it, is it not more deserving then that I should have even stronger feelings for the creator behind these objects for whom I have love or hatred? Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, when I meditated on that, made, uh, and tried to inculcate that, uh, that understanding into my life, um, you know, I, I felt like there were kind of spiritual openings that I began to have that, um, that gave my heart a level of, um, it meant not, you know, a level of, how do you put it? Like, um, uh, how do you translate this? Uh, I know what it means in Arabic, and, and I I know what I'm trying to say. It mitnan is the same root from Oh, the heart finds rest. So yeah, my heart found a kind of rest, right, in in this kind of feeling and this kind of notion uh, after these sorts of spiritual openings that I had had in my personal relationship with Allah. And I think after that, things began began to be uh, much more settled, and my mind and heart felt in harmony. I, I know this is very personal, but yeah. uh, is it possible for you to give an example of an, of one of these experiences or <laughs> yeah. anything? Because because I, I think a lot of people are wondering, like, what is that, that yeah. change? That that what you experienced at least was a, a change in where your reference point was switched from from what your feelings or your your liberal mm-hmm. positions were, and you it clicked uh, the the railroad track kind of switched over and it it started aligning itself with well what does Allah and his messenger want for me you know so i guess in terms of like practical things i mean a lot of this stuff is private but i think you know people a lot gives people trials and tests and calamities and and, and part of that is you know, to respond to see Allah says in the quran that we will give you tests and trials and it says atasbirun will you have patience with them um, and, uh, you know, I think initially, you know, everyone kind of knows what it means to have patience, right? Um, but it's not just like grinning and bearing it, right? I think a lot of patience too is understanding that, um, you're having patience in the face of, um, the maqadir of Allah, the decreed acts of Allah. And that's something noble and valiant. Um, and you begin to meditate on that and you begin to see, realize that even everything you look at in any given moment, all of it is, all of it is, is part of the creation, you know, and you think, you know, I, I remember reading something once that said the, that the, the dunya is kind of like ice cream. It's really delicious, but it's always melting in front of you. You know, Allah says in the Quran, you know, that everything on this world will perish, um, and only the face of your Lord will remain, um, uh, noble and majestic. And, you know, this, this idea, I think, you can understand it and you can repeat it as a type of script. And I think a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, scriptism in our community. People repeat phrases over and over again. And I don't think that they've 
sufficiently uh, uh, concentrated on them and what exactly they're saying. What are these expressions that they're saying? It's, um, it's stuff and, that they're yeah. supposed to say rather than stuff that they've actually understood and given. And in vibe. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, I remember this is just like, uh, I think, uh, a pretty simple example, but I, I remember it was Ramadan. Uh, we, you know, you kind of have this spiritual high in Ramadan. Things are going well. You're fasting. And I remember, you know, reading the verse in Surah, Surah Al-Mulk, um, about the birds flying high above you. And, I th- you know, this is very, it's kind of onomatopoeic, this idea of the, they use the word, um, well, I think it's, we'll play with saw fat. Um, I have to look it up, but there's this term saw fat and that they're, um, that, you know, they're flying above you and, uh, and, and they're flapping their wings and, and Allah calls attention to the birds in the sky. Um, basically I'm, I'm probably, come on, come on, call Allah. You know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly the, the exact verse, but I remember reading this and, you know, we, this is a very basic point, right? Like birds exist and Allah created all the birds, right? But I remember walking on campus one day and I was just thinking about the imagery of birds and how they're part of Allah's creation. And I saw a flock of birds, you know, and something occurred to my heart at that moment and about how beautiful this whole thing was, you know, that I was being given that, that Allah had spoken to me through his book, through his revealed book, and then shown me in real life exactly what he was talking about. And I didn't know that the birds would be crossing my view at that point in time or anything that I, at the same time I was thinking about this verse and it had a real effect on me. I remember crying at a flock of birds and I remember thinking like, what's wrong with me? You know? wow. <laughs> like, what's going on? You know, uh, What is happening right now? And, you know, when you have the, and then, you know, that's what I mean by a kind of uh, a moment of like spiritual insight. You know, we can recite, you know, so many things. We can recite the whole Quran from cover to cover. Um, but I think in those moments, that's when I think Allah hands out, um, you know, uh, little gifts to his servants. You know, my, uh, one of my teachers calls these moments candy for babies, you know, cause yeah. it's, and, and it's not really, um, it's not the point of Islam. The point of Islam is not to just feel cool and spiritual all the time. Um, you know, I you can think you guys had Milana Bilal Ali Ansari, uh, on the show, on the podcast recently, uh, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, something that he taught us um, once was this idea. I think it's in the Naqshbandi Tariqa. They have this thing where they say, that, you know, uprightness is better than, you know, performing a saintly miracle or, you know, having a nice feeling, you know. And so I'm not trying to say that, you know, Islam is all about, like, crying at birds and trees. and No, but a lot of people can actually go with that, uh, with that, you know, gift that Allah SWT gave you. Yeah. And some people can become cardinals and eagles and falcons fans after that. And like, oh, this is a sign. That's what it meant, you know? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's, it's yeah. the ability to recognize that gift that came to you, whether it's in a form of a trial or whether you saw it, um, you saw a verse in the Quran that you contemplated over and yeah. you, you gave your life more meaning after that, you know? <laughs> So, and I think Allah gives these to everybody. I think the question is, are we paying attention or not at what at the time he's showing you those signs? You know? Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. And you happen so, to, because you, and again, you're pursuing, you were reciting Surah Al-Mulk, so you were reflecting upon it, and then it can, you know, you come across the bird. And I think it's, it's funny, because I was, and the, the whole concept of crying out of spiritual ecstasy is mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I think a really fascinating subject in and of itself. And it's something that when I first started reading books about Islam and you would see it or you would talk about like crying out of the fear of Allah or whatever. These were things that were like, I don't know what this is like, because for me, crying was always something negative growing mm. up. Like something mm. bad happened to you. And when you mm. try to explain it to like, I remember I was trying to explain to some coworkers this, you know, and they were like, when you, when you have that experience, you actually like, like want that experience. That's something you're like, yeah. you, you kind of like crave it in a sense. And you remember exactly what triggers it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it, but I mean, me personally, I think sometimes I would try to recreate it sometimes and it doesn't yeah. always work. But that's, that comes back to, yeah. listen, we're not yeah. at the same time, we're not worshiping the experience. We're worshiping Allah. And yeah. these are kind of like, like you said, like little gems and gifts that he gives us mm-hmm. um, when we're traversing this path. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, basically, I think this religion is built on, on serious study and it's also built on experience at a certain, you know, at a certain level. And the idea of, of Vogue, for example, of, of truly tasting what this dean is about, you know, you, uh, it's very, it's a very common phrase, but you know, you can, you can write and you can read a whole lot of books about honey and what it tastes like and all these other sorts of things, but it's never going to be a substitute for actually tasting honey. And, and that's, um, that's kind of what, how I think, uh, people should, understand uh, understand studying their religion a muslim should understand studying their deen rather um that you know studying is a serious endeavor that uses the mind um and it should uh, be challenging and it should um uh, be grueling and it should be a lifelong thing um from the cradle to the grave you know it, it doesn't stop uh, studying but um Coupled with that has to be um, a, a level of practice. I remember one of my, uh, I was talking, he's a really, really great brother. You guys should have him on the on the show sometime, but um, he's Dr. Awamer Anjum. He's a professor of Islamic studies at the University of Toledo in Ohio. Um, he was doing, his, he was a dissertator um, at the time uh, when I was, when I was an undergrad at Madison. And he, you know, he was one of these guys that he is one of these people that I really look up to because he, you know, he, he's a, He's a doctorate in his in Islamic philosophy and history, but he his level of personal practice and devotion, you know, it's it's just a it's just a very big part of his life. Um, and I remember him telling us we were sitting in the masjid, um, and you know, he's a big guy. I mean, his books are like published by like Oxford University Press, and he flies around the world and he gives lectures and talks and blah blah blah. And I remember him saying, you know, Rashid, you know, if you know, I could write all of the books in the world, but if I don't wake up to f- wake up for Fudger with, with Shoke, or if I don't wake up for Fudger at all, um, and the taxi driver who knows next to nothing to me does, um, then this is all nonsense and for nothing. You know what I mean? That this, there, there, there's more, you know, we human beings are not brains that are like floating in vats, you know, like we, we have hearts and we have emotions. Um, and we need to, ensure that those two are kept in balance all the time. And also another thing that's really important is the body. We are also physical beings in this dunya, right? In this temporary life, we have physical, we have physical needs and those all that also needs to be, be kept into consideration. So you have the mind, the body and the spirit. Once these are all in harmony and in accordance and, and once they all have tilfik, um, I think that's when you can truly start to fly and you can start to, um, you can start to taste maybe a little bit of what, the Prophet and Sahaba tasted, you know. 
Sure. And so that that's that, that that was basically my story. I mean, after that, um, I uh, I felt much more uh, well grounded in terms of my Muslimness, and uh, and that's more or less been the case ever since. Uh, I think that's 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 where I am right now. I mean, I've continued to study and, and read and, and such, but I feel like I have my I'm very confident in what I believe my first principles to be and and what I, what it is I stand for. Sure, right? but it didn't come easily. Yeah, so you now at Columbia, you started, you studied uh, public policy, right? Right. Yeah, I studied public policy. Um, it, I, technically, I studied. Um, I have a master's in international affairs. I did. I focus on political development and uh, conflict resolution, and uh, and a few other things. But uh, those are the main things that I was interested in. Um, uh, of course, I was interested in religion, but I was also interested in the communal or societal um, side of the religion and how religion basically affects politics, you know, and, and what does that even mean? And obviously being a Muslim, I was interested in the case of Islam more so than any of the others. So I found myself, even though I was in policy school and taking classes on like wars and militaries and, you know, all these other sorts of things, I would also take elective courses in the near Eastern studies department, taking courses on Islamic law, um, for example, uh, with graduate, graduate, graduate seminars on Islamic law. And so, um, I kind of found myself wavering, uh, in, in kind of both camps, uh, even before starting policy school, I thought, you know, maybe I should just do a PhD in Islamic studies or I should do something like that. But, uh, I eventually decided against it for a number of reasons, but, um, really I wanted to be an actor on the ground. I wanted to be involved in the business of politics while being, um, uh, an observant Muslim is to the best of my ability. And so that's kind of where I found myself studying international affairs. And, and I, the other reason I went into international affairs was I felt that the Muslim community today is being um, and has been uh, for quite some time. Uh, external political events have a huge amount of influence on Muslim societies today and even Muslim communities in the diaspora. And so I wanted to understand what those were about because clearly Muslims don't really know how to navigate this new political world because <laughs> given the state that we're in today, you know. And so um, I felt, you know, there we had a lot of doctors and engineers and lawyers, and so uh, I wanted to do something quirky. And you know, in undergrad, I took Arabic and religious studies courses and courses in international politics, and I continued that in graduate school. Um, and following that, um, I had a short job working on a. Uh, uh, what was what's called a track two peace initiative. Um, but I, we don't need to get into it. But basically, I helped do some work to try and resolve the conflict in in, in Syria. May Allah protect the Syrian people. Um, okay. And uh, after that, I got a job at a think tank in Washington D.C. Um, and uh, and I and I began to do research in a, in the specific department that I work in. Um, it, it, it focuses on. Islam and its relationship to politics. And so we focus mostly on what's called uh, mainstream Islamism. That's kind of one of the issues that we focus on. Um, Islamism is generally understood uh, amongst Western pundits as like the study of groups like uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or Jamaati Islami and these other kinds of groups. Um, and then uh, we also focus on... So hold on. How do you feel about like Westerners using this term to define us? Like, What's your take on that? Because that's not a term we came up with. They like kind of imposed it on us in a sense. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, Islamists call themselves Islamists in Arabic, for example. They okay. will say like Nahnul Islamiyun or 
Islamawiya. These are like terms that they'll use, right? Um, I, I think that in terms of what was opposed, what was, sorry, what was imposed um, was really um, the idea of the idea of human communities that they should all be ensconced within um, a, a Verbarian nation state. Can you uh, translate that? Yeah, ensconced yeah. <laughs> and Verbarian. Like, what was that I'm, word? I'm, I'm very uh, sorry. I should be more. <laughs> I, should think, I should speak things. So, what I'm saying is basically that after colonialism, uh, the states that took over um, oftentimes mimicked the models of governance um, and political organization and community that were found in the West. Um, and there's, that's a, there's a very complicated story behind that. And, uh, it's not like some kind of giant conspiracy. Um, uh, oftentimes just out of sheer need, they adopted this to, uh, uh, to survive, you know? Um, and for, you know, technological change came, um, it was a new world. Modernity, the onset of modernity, um, you know, it, it was a, uh, is is just an incredibly disruptive event in the human in the course of human uh, human history is something that human beings are still coming to terms with um and muslims uh in particular are coming to uh, uh have have had a hard time coming to terms with it um and so yeah i guess uh in terms of islamism though part of the idea uh, of what we this is maybe a side point uh, to what i want to talk about but uh, Islamism is this idea that in the uh, in the logic of modern states, the idea is that the the state creates law and it applies this law equally to all of its citizens, and that informing that law, um, that that the process of the creation of that law will be a human endeavor, whether it's through democracy or whether it's through monarchical decree. But basically, human beings will write laws, um, and uh, they they will not be informed by any kind of like extra rational source. You know? Where classically, prior to this period, um, human sorry, I shouldn't have used the term extra rational. They wouldn't be informed by any kind of supra rational source. Basically, anything outside of yeah, um, it would be outside um, the human being's intellect. Um, I think that's yeah, I think that's maybe the better way to put it. Where classically there was this idea that, hey, you know, we're all Muslims. Um, we're a Muslim nation across different lands all over the world. Uh, but we're still connected in this idea of Umar, Muslim nation. Um, and we all kind of have a kind of understanding that Allah revealed the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad and he gave us Wahi. And this Wahi informs the sacred law, the Sharia, and that it's part of the ruler's duty to ensure that God's law is followed to the best of its ability, or at the very least, the, the ruler should um, ensure that he doesn't make forbidden that which is obligatory, and he shouldn't make obligatory that which is forbidden, you know, on people. You know, that is something that and he should basically make it so that Muslims can practice their Islam um, at all levels, from the level of the individual to the level of the state. Um, that is something that, uh, uh, you know, it was it was kind of taken as a, a taken for granted. Now, over time, you know, this is this is obviously an ideal. Um, prior to modernity, Muslims assumed the, the supremacy of God's law, um, and they at least paid fealty to it, even if it was just like window dressing, right? And it was something that they, um, that, you know, was assumed to inform how society was to operate. 
Um, and it was never something that needed to be um, debated in a real big way in Muslim society until the onset of modernity, really post World War World War Two, uh, World War sorry, post World War One. Uh, and that's this. Obviously, I'm speaking in generalities. I'm sure people can find exceptions here and there, but broadly speaking, this is kind of what I'm what I'm what I'm talking about. After um, after after the creation of modern nation states and and the and, and the modern political unit under which Muslim countries, uh, Muslim majority countries, came about. Uh, now you suddenly have this need to be like, yeah, but we're all Muslims, right? And like our constitution should say that we're Muslims, and Islam is kind of um, how we inform law and reasoning. And maybe the we should write lines in the constitution to say nothing should contradict the Sharia and things like that. Or you know, uh, or maybe we should. And different states had different solutions for this. You know, Iran had one solution. Saudi Arabia had another solution. Pakistan had a solution. Um, uh, how do they incorporate um, the corpus of Islamic law to rule their specific state in this time and age? Um, is that can they even do it? You know, some Muslim countries they just said like straight up like it's just not important to us anymore. At least the government, those in charge, said, and we have like a secular state. Or in, in many cases. Um, uh, and they embrace this idea of secular rule. Uh, and, and overall, I, I don't think that that's a sentiment shared by the vast majority of Muslims, even if they aren't very, very practicing. Um, their Muslim identity is still real. And it's still something that has, you know, if you actually look at polling data, support for the inclusion of uh, uh, of some degree of Islamic law is, is generally supported in in, in, in many regions all across the Muslim world. So um, this is an ongoing conversation. How do you do that? Groups like um, Hezbo Tahrir, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, they basically came about in the absence of a political center for, um, for, 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 the, for Muslim political agency. And, and really, you know, the, the Khilafah and all of its problems and issues, especially at the very end, and really from the beginning, I mean, the, not from the very beginning with the Prophet and, and the Khilafat of Rashidun, but, um, you know, in the early period as well, there are many issues with the Khilafah. But the the fact that the Khilafah existed provided, uh, made it so that political, a Muslim engaging in politics kind of had ground to stand on, right? Um, and this is, I'm taking this from Salman Sayyid. He has this book called Recalling the Caliphate, came out very recently. Um, he's a critical theorist, very interesting guy, um, a practicing Muslim himself. I actually highly recommend this book. I think people should read it. But basically it says that, you know, with the downfall of the caliphate and this, the idea that it can't exist anymore and that Muslims are done with it, when a Muslim engages in a political action today, it's kind of scandalous. It's, it, is, it is a sort of scandal. Um, Muslims are being expected basically to conform to... Um, uh, the notion of like certain things that are religious and they're private and they should be individual, you know, individual choices and certain things are political and politics should not be informed explicitly by a religion. Um, and this comes out of a very Western teleology, a very Western uh, uh, course of intellectual development. Uh, and it's just not really, in my opinion, is not really um, uh it's hard to square that circle with 
with our history in terms of in terms of Muslim civilization and what that means. Sure. So, so are you saying yeah. that there's this issue in Muslim? Because I can see that being an issue in like non-Muslim lands, but you're saying this is an issue in current Muslim lands as well. Um, I mean, uh, I think that there there are definitely issues where like it depends on the country you're talking about, right? Like in uh, in Turkey, up until very recently. If you were a headscarf wearing woman, you were denied public services, you know, the right to like a, an education, state institution. You couldn't enter these universities. Um, uh, you know, I just finished reading this great book by Kaya Gench on, uh, on on modern Turkey, and he describes how headscarf wearing women in Turkey, which was where the seat of the caliphate was uh, for hundreds of years, on, in, in under the Republic of Turkey, headscarf wearing women, when they tried to enter university for the first time at a certain age, um, uh, this is only in the night. This is really in the nineties, right? Right. Like we we all grew up in the nineties, right? Um, uh, these girls would would oftentimes be forced into what were called persuasion rooms. Okay, and a persuasion room was an area in which a professor or some kind of state official would come in and basically say. You have to take your scarf off if you're going to go to school here, right? And why are you doing it? It's totally dumb. And, like, you know, it's really a sign of backwardness. And we don't accept it here. And blah, 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 blah. And they basically subject her to uh, a form of, uh, a form of like, psychological abuse for hours on end. And if she refused at the end of the day... Um, she would be, um, one of, there'd be two doors and one of the doors would lead into the school. The other door would lead back onto the street. She just wouldn't go to school anymore. You have stories where, you know, girls in, in Turkey would, in order to avoid being seen as hijabis, they would go to school wearing hoodies all day. Right. And they would, people like, oh, she's like a goth or something like that. You know, when they had exams and they had to dress nicely, um, you had, in this age, um, you had girls who would wear wigs. Um, on exam days, because they have this thing where you dress nicely on an exam day, um, they would wear wigs to cover their hair. Um, and, you know, this was in ostensibly a Muslim majority country, you know, and, and so I mean, obviously Turkey is, a, is its own case and has its own history. Um, but, but, but why is it, yeah. why is it wrong? I mean, it's, it, it seems like it's, uh, uh, the caliphate is like a, a bad word these days, like just because of, I mean, of course, ISIS did a whole lot of damage to the word itself, but, I mean, we have um, like Linda Sarsour saying jihad now, and why is it why is it that the caliphate is such a bad word that goes beyond jihad? Because I mean, yeah, it seems know, like it's, it's, it's a very fascinating but, issue. Um, I you know I, I there's there if you actually look, I wrote a small article about this, and I don't know if you guys have like show notes or something, and you can link to it if you're interested. But um, I wrote, wrote it a long time ago when I was in graduate school, and several years ago now. It was called the other C word. The, the meaning caliphate, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the idea is that this word has um, has really kind of spooked um, uh, global elites for quite some time, um, especially in the Western world. Um, and you know, you, as soon as the United States launched its invasion into Iraq in two thousand three, you had statements in a certain year. I want to say it was like two thousand five, two thousand six. As early as that, where you had statements from Blair, Bush, Rumsfeld, all these people. Um, who would say, you know, in Iraq right now, there are terrorists who their goal is to create a transnational caliphate um, and they want to extend it from Morocco to Southeast Asia 
and that that is your goal. That's what they're trying to work for. And you know, on you know, when you say it in an ominous tone, it probably sounds ominous, right? But this is just like a political project, right? I think the question we have to ask to ourselves is, you know, what things are 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 are, are glazed over with this kind of sense of of, of trepidation? Uh, and what things are, are just spoken about in a rational manner? What is wrong, right? And the idea is why why is this spooky to people? Is because there is this idea that you know we live in the modern age where where like religion is supposed to have been something that disappeared a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, humans were supposed to have transcended it. Uh, you know, we were supposed to reach the end of history after communism. Right. And it's just, yeah. A theocracy was, yeah. it was, yeah. uh, everyone had thought that it has ended with the downfall of the Ottoman empire. And now humanity has progressed on towards more secular values. And we're going to keep moving in that direction. Where I think the end game, at least uh, from the liberal sense or liberalism sense, was going to be that you know religion will mostly be a cultural identity rather yeah. than something that uh, people will be expressing in in the streets and yeah in other ways. And, and and you know this is interesting because this whole notion of like we were past it you know at, at a certain point it comes out of. Uh, it is basically in in many cases it is um, Western elites and intellectuals and thought leaders reading um, a a history of, of 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 Europe and its struggle with religion onto other societies as if they had the same experience and involved in that process is the cat is the category of the word religion and what it means and the idea is like you know basically. They think like, okay, there's the difference between you and between Christianity and, Muslim, and Islam is that, you know, we believe in Jesus. You guys believe in Allah. You know, you guys, we have the Bible. You guys have the Quran. You know, um, we have the church. You guys have a mosque and blah, blah, blah. It's basically like, let's play this game of like, just switch the words around, you know. And at the end of the day, you believe in this idea of religion, right? Um, and it does and it doesn't, and it's a very cynical, um, and it's a very cynical view of looking at what, um, religion even is right. I mean, the, for instance, if you look, and it, it doesn't even take into serious um, uh, what's it called? It doesn't take into serious uh, consideration the various metaphysical systems that underpin different religions from different civilizations in different parts of the world. So, if you were to go to, for instance, the Far East and you learn about Buddhism or Hinduism or you learn about Shin, or Shin, the Shinto religion or these other things, it doesn't translate as easily. There may be, of course, I'm not saying that everything is like, it's like oil and water and there's no similarities. We have similarities as, as Muslims, especially with our Abrahamic brothers and sisters. But um, there's this idea that the, the trauma and the history that the West went through in terms of its relationship um, with its religion, right, uh, where, you know, the church was oppressive and they had such a stranglehold on society and they, um, you know, they they were corrupt, and they controlled the people and manipulated them. And they charged them for indulgences, which are these things like, um, uh, you know, they uh, they they would say you committed a sin. If you want the sin uh, removed from your record, pay us some money, and then we'll like do a, a blessing or something, get it rid get rid of it for you. Um, you know, the, these ideas um, it resulted for um, the Christian West in. Uh, the Protestant Revolution and uh, Reformation, this idea of uh, liberating the individual self um, uh, from the strictures of organized religion and the church, right? 
you know, but when it comes to like, uh, especially Sunni Islam, um, there's no such, there's not a simple or we don't have a, a quote unquote church, right? We have this like very informal institution of the ulama, but were they, is there like some kind of like top down hierarchical um, church to speak of in Islam? I, I not really, you know, right. so what are we going to reform? What are we, what are you even talking about? In, in fact, in many ways, the, the, um, but, the, the, but the, the, the body that did govern the scholars was the caliphate in the past, and we don't have that anymore. That, well, not that, really. That I mean, I would say that. I well, mean, the, I the think, scholars yeah. did report to, like, for example, we know uh, Imam Ahmad Nambu when he went against the state and the, the, the body of scholars that uh, reported to the state, he was in prison, right? So, I mean, we know for, just from that, because it, I just use that example because yeah, it's yeah. a pretty well-known example, uh, we know that there were a lot of scholars who uh you know there were a body and they acted in accordance with what the government wanted in that time i think mm -hmm. uh who was that well i mean i don't know i mean it depends on what you mean like when you say this the scholars the body of scholars reported to the state i don't think that that's entirely accurate it's not like they had some kind of organization they sent a representative and like right. they spoke on behalf of all the scholars like i'm not saying you couldn't be a yeah. scholar in, in yeah. general but i'm just saying that this, the state did have a, a body of scholars that the state tried to influence um, scholarly discourse to the best of their ability. This usually meant um, eventually the well in the initial period, you know, various uh, caliphs would come in to scholars and say like, you know, like for instance, um, an Umayyad caliph I believe came to Imam Malik and said, you know, I'm going to take your book that you wrote the Muwatta and I'm going to implement it as the law of Islam throughout the lands. And uh, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to get basically ensure that your interpretation takes precedent over all and we'll just get rid of the others, basically. Um, and he was like, no, I, I don't want that to happen at all. That's not the point. And I don't want you to force these things um, to the uh, uh, exclusion of other interpretations. Right. Um, and he resisted that, you know, and, and, and this was also in, in, in the era uh, you brought up the mihna of uh, the Inquisition of Imam Ahmed Rahimahullah, who this idea was like, hey, um, at the time the Murtazali school of Aqidah had had grown ascendant um, and had fallen. In, it was was popular with with the with the caliph's court at the time, um, and so uh, you had uh, Murtazali's basically influencing the caliphal court. Um, and they wanted to basically outlaw anything that wasn't in conformance uh, with uh, Murtazali Aqidah and doctrine. And so this, this centered around the idea of is the Quran created or uncreated? Uh, you know, the exact contours of that debate might be outside of this discussion right now. But basically, the traditional position is that the Quran is an uncreated object because it's the speech of Allah. The speech of Allah does not have a beginning or an end. It just always was it's an attribute of his. So the Quran, in a sense, always existed. It was just revealed in a certain time and place to human beings. But it wasn't like it didn't exist. And then Allah um, created it for human beings. Like he spoke. Because if he did that, that implies that God changes right, right? But he, you know and so this was the, the the thing that traditionalists are trying to avoid because it it gets rid of Allah's tanzih right of him being transcendent above change and of and, and perfection uh, and uh, transcendent and that he was perfect right right um, no, no but, the, but, the, change, but, but, but the but the point was was that um there are scholars who were part of the government like even just the court yes. system right for example the qadi of a judge 
in, yeah. in the traditional sense in 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 the Muslim history, we yeah. know that he was a uh, a graduate of a university Absolutely. like Azhar or whatever, and he would but, but be even appointed as a system, judge. I was going to bring this up. Right. But the court system is that it was seen as something that you just had to do as a scholar. You, it was a fard kifaya. Certain scholars had to be judges because society needed to function and the law of Islam uh, and people needed to be able to like you needed to have an official who could interpret what Islam meant. Um, for certain cases, for certain cases, and then the state needed to accept that interpretation and then uh, enforce its application, right? So it needed to enforce contracts or property law or family law or penal law, whatever the case is, right? It needed to enforce that. So you need to have the institution of Qudah, uh, right, of, of, of judgeship, right? And so... Um, but in the initial period, you had you had people who are like, yeah, I'll serve as a state judge, but I'm not going to go to a courthouse. I'm not going to wear fancy robes. There was this idea that the state was something that like you dealt with because you you, there, you it was like, but you really didn't want to have to deal with it. And in Muslim society, it was interesting because it, at least in the initial period, it tried to resist the administrative state. To use Steve Bannon's term, right? Yeah. <laughs> they tried to resist the idea of a state that would have like utter control over um, what Islam meant. And so Ahmed ibn Hanbal's stance in the Mihna was really a turning point for Muslims where he said, you know, I'm not going to allow the executive branch of the caliphate, you know, which was represented by the caliphate. I'm not going to allow the executive of the state to um, decide what Islam means and doesn't mean. That is the purview of the ulama. And I want that to remain the purview of the ulama. I'm not going to be strong-armed into changing the position there, right? Um, and uh, it, it's uh, it's very you know you bring up this story. Um, there's there's a this is I don't know you don't have to introduce this, um, but uh, there's there's a very cool story of um, uh, where uh, you know when he was tortured, Imam Ahmed and Humble, uh quite often. Uh, and the, he had a, a Mu'tazili scholar in his employment. His name was Ibn Abi Du'ad. And he was, uh, he was the Mu'tazili scholar of the, uh, the Khalifa Mu'tazim's court. Right. Um, and he came to uh, uh, Imam Ahmed and he said, um, you know, as he was being tortured, you know, and uh, as he was, I think he was being whipped. And he said, you know, Ya Ahmed, just whisper in my ear that the Quran is created and I, so that I might save you from the caliph's punishment. And uh, Imam Ibn, Ibn Habal retorted and he said, Ya Ibn Abi Duat, just whisper in my ear that the Quran is the uncreated speech of God so that you might be spared from the punishment of the Almighty. Right? And there's, you know, there's this really different right. idea that, you know, there, this idea that, you know, we need to keep at the, uh, we need to keep the kalimatullah uh, al-uliya. Uh, we need to keep the uh, word of God in the highest position, transcended. It needs to be at the top of the social pyramid and how we understand things. The, what the what the caliph says this shouldn't replace the caliph is not God, right? And in fact, what the actual title of the caliph was um, was was like the subject of you know this is Awamer Anjum, uh, my friend that I mentioned to you um, earlier in the podcast. Like I said, a very good brother. Wrote, you know, he, you should check his book out for this, um, uh, which is is called like um, Politics and Medieval Muslim Thought. The team. How do you spell his first name? Um, o v a m i r. Um, uh, he talks about how you know 
people, uh, the debate over what was the full title of the office of the caliph. Was it Khalifatullah, the, the caliph of Allah? Was it Khalifatul Rasulullah? Or was it the, 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 the successor to um, the caliph, successor of the prophet of God? Um, and you have instances of people that go up to the caliph and say, uh, uh, rather than right? Um, meaning, oh, employee of the believers, rather than commander of the believers. Right. This idea that, hey, you know, you work for us, you work for the ummah, right? Um, and your your job is to facilitate the um, uh, the execution of um, a, a well running, a well ran state, and also the execution of Allah's dictates in the world where the state has purview over that, right? And, and, and needs to enforce certain things, whether it's in contracts or otherwise, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, this we came a long way from talking about like, uh, yeah. you know, what does Islamism mean? But uh, in general, uh, I gave this whole kind of tirade um, to show in, in the fact that, you know, Western Europe and, and, and Christendom went through a... Um, they ran from the church and the institution of the church to the state. Yeah. And, and they built that out and they ran away from their religion, largely speaking, at least how it was classically understood. Um, and they ran into the arms of the state. Muslims had in many ways had almost the opposite experience where they ran from the state and they opposed the state, the office of the caliph, and they ran to the scholarly class of the ulama. So today, if you're an average Muslim, who's even somewhat knowledgeable about your religion, even not even, you don't even have to be that knowledgeable, but you can, most people can barely remember the names of like six or seven khulafa after the rightly guided caliphs, right? Probably. I mean, you would be hard pressed unless you're like a dork about Muslim history. You, yeah. you probably don't really know their names even. They've been, they've been almost forgotten by the ummah almost entirely, right? And what they did, and, like, no one really cares. Yeah, I got a funny story for you, Rashid. So, yeah, I have a yeah, friend yeah. of mine. He he uh, told me that, um, so I uh, texted him a screenshot of, this is a side tangent, we'll, and I'll, I'll make sure we get back on topic. I screenshotted, yeah. uh, I'm reading this commentary on the Qasida Burda, right? Yeah. Right? So, this dude, he hits me back. He's like, yo, I read that that has shirk in it. But then, like, he also has no idea who Umar ibn Abdulaziz is. <laughs> wow. You know what I'm saying? I was like, so, oh, do you, dude, you, yeah, you don't yeah, know, Omar, you know, Casino Bird has got shirk in it, but Omar yeah. even up to those Z's. You know, you it, it goes back to, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, things that you're supposed to say, yeah. and then things yeah. that you've actually given thought to and had deep reflection on a lot right. of the stuff you, you actually say. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Total idiot. I, you know, that's, that's all I care I, about. I, I want to I ask you a question, yeah. again, from a layman's perspective. So, sure. I, I'm a layman when it comes to, like, political, the political landscape and stuff. So, yeah. for me, I'm like, okay, doesn't Saudi Arabia, okay, I know it's not easy for everyone to go to Saudi Arabia, but doesn't Saudi Arabia have a kind of a model for, like, they have the permanent committee of scholars, they have, they you know, they have judges that rule by Sharia in some ways. They're probably not implementing everything, but at the end of the day, was the caliph was the caliphate implementing every single thing? Um, you know, and people are going to get and I, I, well. The, here's a simple uh, response, and I think Russia would agree. There's a lot of foundational elements within the kingdom 
that would probably disqualify it from even being remotely called a caliphate. I think there's uh, economic uh, policies like, for example, having an interest-based economy, uh, having a, a monarchy in itself um, um, be completely opposed. That belief itself is completely opposed to what Islam teaches us. I, I thought monarchy was part of the hadith of uh, the hadith of Prophet after the Caliph al Rashidin, right? Wasn't Muawiyah considered a well? That, that, that was just saying that these are the events that will transpire. Not, I mean, that wasn't that wasn't a, a command. On, uh, no, but on I guess Muslim. my point is because why after that it said it'll be an oppressive kingship. Yeah. It's not commanding the rulers to be an oppressive king. But that's still considered a caliphate, though, right? The oppressive kingship, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it was still uh, considered a caliphate in terms of the actual framework, right? The framework is there, but that doesn't mean that it's being actually implemented in in a, the way the Prophet saw some and the the rightly guided caliphs actually implemented it. It wasn't um, the model institution that was supposed to be yeah let me let me ask you about yeah uh, you know the, the the work that you're doing with a think a think tank in general what what type of engagement are you providing for muslims by working with a think tank that's purportedly trying to understand muslims a lot better right and they're trying to inform policies that uh, you know might might be or may not be for the benefit of Muslims, how do you you know how do you reconcile your uh, your work over there and and try to see? Well, mm-hmm. I hope I'm you know doing some work that's positive for for yeah. Muslims you know, I here. think one of the things about think tanks in Washington is that more or less, I mean, you're not going to really have a think tank in Washington that's not trying to look out for the national interests of America, at least in terms of their mission statement. You know, whether it's the you know the the like uh, America First Institute or all these like Nazi type organizations or whether it's like you know like a communist type think tank or something like that, or something in the middle which is kind of uh, uh, where I work um, they all think that they're doing the best thing for the American state they're not really looking at um, you know the welfare of uh, the the in, in their mission statement is not really to look out for what's best for China or something like this. I mean, the, they have separate centers for that. I'm sure China has its own think tanks or something. But in general, the main, the underlying kind of understanding is that hey, we're all trying to make, we're we're trying to put forward different visions of how America can better conduct itself. So that's that said, the think tank occupies an interesting space, um, which is kind of between academia. And between, uh, you could say, a common conversation and public discourse. Um, in a sense, you know, think tankers translate uh, academic ideas and policies, um, academic ideas and recommendations that are coming out of maybe universities and very dense books and things like that. And they put them into actionable policy recommendations and they debate those actionable policy recommendations Many times in the public sphere, sometimes, you know, within private roundtables that we might hold, or sometimes they'll advise the government when they're asked to. Um, and, uh, you know, look, for instance, if you read like an op-ed in New York Times that advocates for a certain policy towards a certain country, oftentimes it is in America that um, it'll be a think tank person that wrote that report. Yeah. And they're trying to influence the public discourse through the... Um, through the uh, uh, institution that is a think tank, um, and uh, and so they're seeing there's this creation of the experts industry, 
Um, and you know, for more on this, I would, I would suggest people check out Daniel Dresner's new book, the ideas industry. And in a sense, you know, think tanks are, I mean, just my experience having worked in one that they, they, we, people are doing real academic work, but, um, at the same time, I think everyone is pushing a certain, you could say take or angle or agenda or whatever the case might be, you might be at a center left think tank. So your ideas, you may be trying to speak to um, democratic party operatives and leaders, try and see try and influence how they see things and maybe change their party platform. Uh, or you might be anticipating that your guy might become president in the next election. And so you're trying to jockey and position yourself as the expert in a certain issue so that when your guy comes to power, you're plucked, from the think tank and put into the administration. Um, oftentimes, this is just kind of how um, things go in DC in terms of uh, positioning. Uh, in, in your estimation, in your estimation, huh? do you think the think tanks are actually trying to understand the correct um, reality of Muslims in America? Are they, or are they, you know, trying to paint Muslims in a certain way? I know you alluded to there's people who are center left and. You know, there's they come from all kinds of different backgrounds, but in your estimation, do you feel like think tanks are actually trying to get a correct reality of Muslims, or are they trying to paint them you know, Muslims as you know uh, in whatever favor they want to, you know, in, in whatever well, I mean, light it, they I want mean, to? I mean, this again, like I said, is a loaded question, or I didn't say this. This is a type of loaded question, right? Insofar as like the correct understanding of what Muslims and Islam are really depends on the kind of person you are and the principles by which you approach life. If like just in the conversation we had earlier, I talked about how I changed the foundational principles of how I view my life. I believe that the correct understanding of Muslims and Islam is that Islam is a revealed religion that comes from above the arch of Allah that came down upon the heart of the Prophet and that this is the reality and this is, you could say, the last bus home. It provides the means for salvation. It is something that human beings should accept if they want to attain eternal felicity in the next life. That's my correct understanding of Islam, yeah? And that's what we believe as Muslims, you know? But is that going to be, um, is that going to appear in the next, like, think tank publication? Probably not, yeah? It's not going to be, but we shouldn't expect that, right? No, of because course that, not. That, that isn't. No, of course uh, not. But there's, job, there's, there's general you know, themes. trying to push that, you know? That's not, that's not the angle, yeah? But they will instead, you know, what is, you know, the general theme, I don't know, being pushed is going to be influenced by the, the state of the policy debate right now is going to be influenced by um, is going to be influenced by uh, uh, how the political winds are blowing. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've noticed how, you know, you'll see, you know, like people will change their tone in discourse. Like, for instance, here's a here's an easy idea, right? Like. If you were to write, we were talking about, just because we were talking about um, the caliphate earlier, um, in the wake of ISIS, it's not going to be too popular to write an article about how actually the caliphate isn't that problematic and is something that a lot of Muslims believe in. Okay, You do that, you're going to be painted as like some kind of ISIS supporter or something, and you don't understand how terrible the caliphate is, or blah, 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 right? Um, and so there's, there's a kind of... Um, uh, cleverness that you need to have in order to navigate these waters. You need to be paying attention to the state of the public discourse and trying to figure out how to make the case in a smart way, in a way that's readable, in a way that's presentable, in a way that is accessible um, and convincing, right? 
Um, and if, you know, if you wanted to argue this point that, you know, just the, in the example I just gave, it would be, uh, it would be, it would be difficult and would take some time and you would really have to think how to frame that argument. Right. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and oftentimes it's a, it's a question of Hikma. Is that really the conversation you want to bring up right now? Is it really the most important thing, um, facing Muslims today? No. Right. I mean, and this is, this is, I think, um, you know, this is, we just need to have more uh, strategy, yeah. strategy rather, in terms of how you think about issues. You need to see, like, what what are the concerns of the American people right now with regards to the Muslim world or Islam or whatever the case might be. Let's speak to those concerns, right? And let's let's kind of uh, cool the waters a little bit before we jump to things like, you know, like, you know, don't write an op-ed talking about how like. You know, the HUD punishments are real or something. You're just not going to go down, right? It's just, you're dumb at that point, you know? Like, just, Mahin wants the HUD punishments back. He quickly wants to get his sin over with and get that punishment done with and move on. With uh, I actually have a prefer. Uh, uh, my, my personal favorite is the firing squad. I've always said that. The firing squad is pretty. Well, that's not really. I, love the, I don't think that's Caleb. part of Islamic HUD punishments. I think yeah, those we, are. Might as well. Like, you, you, I think those are American HUD punishments. Yeah, but you, 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 you can take the benefit from the other countries too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they still they use that or not. Leave the bed. <laughs> you know, but uh, Rasha, I think I think we need to, like, we need to get a book list. I think when Sim comes through and edits the show, that's like write every book you recommended and put it on the show notes because that's always like we we don't read enough, man. And and I think that's something we uh, want to do. But I think Sim's got to go pray Maghrib. I'm traveling because okay. I because okay. I follow Madison so, opinion that 27.2 miles, and <laughs> every time I come out here, it's like. Traveling, dude. <laughs> I'm good. To Raka Isha. So, Rashid, again, Jazakallah Khair for coming through. Um, you know, really appreciate it. Really got a lot of food for thought for us. Um, and next time you're in Chicago, hit us up. Yeah. Because I know you're a native to here, so. Yeah, we got to uh, you this Chinese. There's a Chinese halal place right next to Sims Place that we, last, I think last time you were you were hanging out with us, we had some wing zone. But um, but uh, how okay. can people find out more about you? Like, where can they uh, engage with you if you have any, you have any social media contact yeah. or anything like that um so i think that you know i don't use facebook as much or instagram anymore um the, the, the best place to find me is um twitter so it's just my first name last name r-a-s-h-i-d-d-a-r one word uh no, nothing else um you should find me there you can send me a dm or you know just follow me or whatever and um would love to engage further and i guess lastly i wanted to say that um you know a lot of the times, you know, a lot of the topics we talked about were about history, about hypothetical situations are rather abstract. Um, I don't want people to get the impression that, you know, I'm some kind of like closet like ISIS or I'm trying to make a justification for this and that. This is something that unfortunately Muslims have to say now. Right. Uh, but it's just to have a kind of rational conversation about things. Yeah. It's just a, what I want to do when I ask these questions to broach a conversation that I think Muslims don't have enough within their own communities. And, um, you know, I am not sitting here saying that I have the authoritative knowledge as to how Muslims should operate their communities politically. I don't. I see that as an ongoing conversation. And I've written before that I actually think that this, that Muslims themselves don't really have a clear idea because they're actually engaged in an ongoing dialogue and a dialectic with um, with other ideologies of the day today. And, and they, they still are trying to articulate, um, what it means to govern, 
uh, and to live by and to uh, have a society that's understood through um, Islam as it's revealed as as a real real as a revealed religion, um, and that's a conversation that will be ongoing. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't necessarily. This is I. The reason I like studying this stuff is because it's, you know, it's it's just so, there's so there's the plethora of opinion out there is just, you know, we're in such a uh, it's like the wild west when it comes to politics. You know, like no 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 fucky can really tell you how things should ultimately be in this day and age right now. Everyone has a different different stance. Some people are like pro revolution. Some people are anti revolution. Some people are this or that. I mean, you can find. Um, people um spouting off every which point of view um and so in that sense i like to think that i my 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 intention when i went into this was that i wanted to just learn more and i'm still learning you know and i'm still formulating my views in consultation with scholars and 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 people of knowledge who understand this tradition better so if i said anything wrong you know please forgive me as from myself and if I said anything correct, it's, it's from Allah. And, uh, it's Allah. I say it from Allah. Exactly. All right. for coming through. For our listeners yeah. out there, if you have any questions or comments, you have you can contact us at themadmumluks at gmail.com. You can like our Facebook page. You guys, we need more Facebook likes. I mean, people reach out to us. Like, we love your show. Like us on Facebook. Share share our stuff. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes uh, if you really want to support us. And then follow us on Twitter, and we are also on Instagram. For our special guest, Rashid Dar, uh, and for my co-host, Sim, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum.